So in the next few weeks, Lord willing, we'll be doing a sermon um, series on different Advent themes. And today we're beginning that series. We're beginning with Genesis 15. So in Genesis 14, Abraham had just rescued Lot and had fought against a number of kings. God gave him a great victory. That brings us to Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Now, in response to the reading of God's Word, let's also sing together Psalm 105, stanzas 2 and 4.
As mentioned, the text for this morning's sermon is Genesis chapter 15. We've read that together already. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have entered a time of Advent. Now, what is Advent? Well, it's the anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. Now, as a New Testament church, we can say in one way that we are always in a time of Advent. And that's because we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ into this world for a second time. We're waiting his return to this earth. We are always in this time of Advent. However, Advent is also, uh, it can also refer to the time leading up to Christmas. At this time, we often focus on the first coming of the Son of God into this world. It's good for us to do this. Our focus should be on Jesus Christ, his coming into this world. That's so much of what the Bible is about. Yet in this time of Advent this year, we're going to make our focus a little bit broader. We want to focus on Advent and what it says about our God. What it tells us about who he is. And Lord willing, in the next few weeks, we'll look at various passages to see what they say about God, especially in relation to his work of bringing his son into this world to save us. In short, in this time of Advent, in the next few weeks, we're going to look at various attributes of God, or as some theologians put it, we're going to look at the perfections of God, what he's like, his character. What is the goal of doing this? Well, we want to know God more. Also through the sending of his Son into this world. We want to stand in awe of him more. We want to learn to trust him more. To serve him. And to love him with all of our heart. And we will reach this goal by God's grace and the working of his Spirit through his word. So today, we're going to look at Genesis 15. We're going to see what it says about Advent, the sending of God's Son into this world, and what it says about our God. We're going to look at two main things this morning. We're going to see that God is powerful, and He is trustworthy. Trustworthy. So summarize the sermon as follows. Advent and the attributes of God... God is powerful and trustworthy. We have two points. God's power brings forth the promised offspring. And second, God's trustworthiness gives stability to our faith. So Genesis 15. Of course, it's about God's dealings with Abraham. And in many ways, the story of Abraham is a story of God's power. God himself suggests this to Moses in Exodus 6, where he says, When I reveal myself to Abraham, I reveal myself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. 
And it's really astounding what God does with Abraham, isn't it? He's going to build a great nation from him. You see, if you or I were trying to build a great and powerful nation, with, with whom would we start? Whom would we choose to build that nation? Well, we would probably choose some young, healthy people who, who have a lot of potential. But that's not what God does. The Lord revealed His plans in Genesis 12. He, he has plans to make a great nation. He's He has plans to bless all the families of the earth. That's his plan. And whom does God choose to bring this plan about, to kickstart this plan? Well, he chooses old man Abraham. A man with zero potential to build a nation. Zero. God could have chosen anyone on earth. It's his choice. And he decides to start a great nation with two people who are well past childbearing age. And Abraham had to confess that he was powerless to bring about God's promises. He could not do it himself. He could not do it by his own work whatsoever. He was an old man, his wife was well past childbearing age, and this is so much of what the Abraham story is focused on. Everything depends upon God. Everything depends on God's power to bring about a child. He promised it, and now Abraham has only one option. He must trust, and he must wait. In faith. And this is what Advent is all about, too. You see, the fulfillment of God's promises depends upon the birth of a promised offspring, the birth of a promised Messiah. And all humans, including us, are of themselves powerless to bring this Savior into the world. Humans must trust God's power and wait for Him. We must trust God that He's going to bring the promised child despite all the odds. Trust that God will work a mighty work of salvation no matter what, no matter how bad things look. Now, in Genesis 14, Abraham had rescued Lot. He and his men fought against a whole group of kings and their armies. God had brought about a great victory for them. And at the beginning of this chapter, the word of the Lord came to him again, and God said, Fear not, Abraham, I am your, sh- your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or as we could translate it, uh, I am your very great reward. Now, Abraham had won a great victory but only because the Lord was his shield. God had protected him and would continue to protect him. And Abraham had also refused the spoils of war. He did not want the king of Sodom boasting that he had made Abraham rich. 
But Abraham still had great treasure. Abraham was rich in God. His reward would be very great in God. God was his very great reward. And understand that even though he had refused all that that spoil of war, he didn't lose out on any treasure. God would not disappoint him. God would not disappoint him. And this begs the question of us. Is God your greatest treasure in life? Is he your very great reward? Or has something else taken his place? So the Lord gave Abraham reassurance at the beginning of this chapter. I am your shield, your very great reward. And yet, despite the reassurance, Abraham, he he still has questions. You see, despite the victory and God's reassuring word, you know, the the land, the promise of the land, it, it still did not belong to him. And he was also still without the promised child, and he had already done quite a bit of waiting. And so he asked, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And in response, the Lord said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son, literally one who comes from your own body, shall be your heir. And then the Lord, he took Abraham, he brought him outside, he said, look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. It's always a good thing to look up at the stars. What do the stars proclaim to us? Well, they proclaim the power of God. The stars are massive. There's billions of them. And the Lord God made them all simply by speaking the word. He just spoke, he commanded, and the the stars came into being. If that does not show the almighty power of God, then nothing will. The prophet Jeremiah himself confessed in Jeremiah 32, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. And this is what Abraham needs to think about as he struggles with doubts about God's promises. This is what Abraham needs to know about his God. Look up at the stars, Abraham. The God who who promised you a child made all those stars. And if he did that, then surely it's not too hard for him to give you the promised child. You may be nearly dead. You may feel like you have one foot in the grave. The God who put all those stars up into space can make your descendants as numerous as as those very stars in the sky. And notice how God is so certain here. 
right? His words display an absolute confidence in his own ability to do this. There's not a, sh- a shred of doubt. And his promises are always sure, no matter how difficult the fulfillment seems. God knows he has the power to fulfill his promises no matter what, so he speaks with confidence. And this, too, is what we celebrate in Advent. God not only had the power to bring a child and a great nation out of old man Abraham, he had the power to create a child in the womb of Mary, in the womb of a virgin. The same power at work to give Abraham and Sarah a child was the same power God used to conceive Christ Jesus in Mary's womb. God brought a Savior when humans were powerless to create one. God did it. But His power is not stopped there. It's not finished there. God not only created a human in the womb of the virgin... He also created a sinless human. And this is something humans could not do. This is the saving power of God toward us. See, we were powerless to save ourselves. Through man, all children are conceived and born in sin. None of us could bring forth a Savior. But the story of Advent is what is impossible for man, is possible with God. Job states in Job 14, Who can bring something clean out of something unclean? There is none. And that's true. There's no human who could do that. But God can do it, and He did it in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the power of God to save humanity. And this is a power Abram trusted in. God told him to look at the stars. He said, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now as you read through this chapter, it, it seems almost like an insignificant comment. Something that's not part of the, the main purpose of the chapter. It's easy to pass over, but these words are packed with meaning. Abraham trusted in God. He trusted in God's promises. He trusted in God's power to fulfill those promises. Abraham essentially trusted in God's power to raise the dead. That's how Romans 4 describes it. And then the Lord justified him. God declared Abraham, a sinner, to be righteous. His sins were forgiven. He was counted to have obeyed the whole law. And it happened through faith. Faith. And even though this is such a, seems like an insignificant comment in this chapter, this is perhaps the most surprising thing of all. Perhaps more than anything in this chapter, this shows us God's power to save. It shows God took Abram, a man dead in sin, a man who worshipped idols in his previous life, and God made him spiritually alive. He gave him the gift of faith. 
And then he forgave all his sins and counted him righteous. He saved him. That's what Advent is all about. It's about God saving sinners despite all the odds. This is why God sent His Son into the world that we might not perish but have eternal life. That we might be declared righteous by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. See, when God justifies Abraham here, he's, He's not pulling righteousness out of thin air. No, He gets it from somewhere. And he gets this righteousness through his very own son who came to save us. We're justified in the same way as Abraham through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness before God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's dealings with Abraham teach us never to, never to despair that God can work salvation. Right? God is mighty to save. And when you look at yourself, you might see a person who's weak, someone with many flaws, someone who's weak in faith, struggles with many doubts, struggles with temptation. Never doubt God's power to save you. Remember Abraham. God pulled offspring as many as the stars in the sky out of a man as good as dead. God counted righteousness to a sinner who simply looked to God's promises in faith. The Lord is mighty to save you too. Remember, Abraham did not have perfect faith. And we see something of that in this chapter too, right? He, he had his questions for God. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? And later on again, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? Of course, these questions are not blatant unbelief. But they do reveal a man who is not perfect in faith. And isn't that comforting? This is Abraham, the father of all believers. He was not a perfect believer, and neither are we. But what counts is not that we have perfect faith. What counts is that our faith is directed to the right person, to the Lord Jesus Christ and God's promises in Him. That's what matters In Christ Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Look to Him in faith. God is powerful to save in the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to our next point. So we see in in the first part of this text an emphasis on God's power. The Lord has power to bring countless offspring from Abraham. And through Abraham's offspring, He's also going to bring... The, the great promised offspring, the Savior of the world. But again, God says to Abraham, I'm or, or sorry, God then says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And again, Abraham replies, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the Lord then answers in an astonishing way. 
Uh, he tells Abraham he has to, to get for himself a, a number of animals. And, and Abraham need, seems to know exactly what the Lord has in mind here. Right? He, he brings out the animals and he cuts them in half, except for the birds. And then he lays the animal pieces and the birds opposite each other. And he leaves some space between the pieces. And he's creating a, a kind of lane or, or a kind of walkway. We can, can imagine it kind of like this walkway here, this lane here. Now what's going on here? It might be familiar to Abraham, but it, it sounds pretty strange to us. We don't do this kind of thing in our time. Well, what is happening is that God is formally making a covenant with Abraham. And actually, the term to make a covenant in Hebrew is literally to cut a covenant. And that's because of this matter of cutting the animals in half. So, to cut a covenant is to make a covenant. So, God made his covenant with Abraham in response to his question, how am I to know that I shall possess the land. You see, Abraham, he's, he's struggling with doubts, right? He's, he's craving certainty from God. So, God cuts this covenant with Abraham to give him stability in his faith. And the Lord wants Abraham to know that God, that the Lord, is absolutely trustworthy. Abraham does not need to doubt God's promises even for a moment, not even for a second. Now, this covenant-making ceremony involves two main things. First of all, it involved the promise. God said to Abraham that his offspring would be sojourners in a foreign land. They would be afflicted for 400 years. But God would bring judgment on the nation they serve. And in the fourth generation, they shall come back here to possess the land. And Abraham himself would die at a good old age. And after God spoke his promise, something astonishing happened. The sun went down, it was dark. And then, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the animals. What is going on here? Well, walking between the pieces of the animals was part of the covenant-cutting ceremony. One commentator described it well when he said, at the conclusion of a covenant agreement, it was sometimes a custom for the parties to walk between the pieces of the torn-up animal. And this served as a kind of acted-out curse. What they were saying was, if I break my covenant... May I be torn to pieces like this animal. If I break my covenant, may I be torn to pieces like this animal. Now the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch represented the Lord. And he himself passed through the pieces of these animals. But notice something else. Abraham does not walk through. God walked alone. And by this, the Lord was effectively saying to Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise depends entirely upon me. And I'm determined to keep my promise. 
fact, I'm binding myself to do it. And if I were to break my promise, I'd have to be torn apart like these animals. But I will not break my promise so you can trust me. And this is the anchor Abraham needed for his soul. He had to wait so long, it was easy for doubts to creep in his mind and his heart, and maybe he felt his faith waning. But God was saying, do not doubt, I will not let you down. It may have looked like God was putting himself into an impossible bind here. How could these things be? How could God be so sure? But God knows what he's doing, and Abraham could trust God's word, and we can trust God's word too. We have the advantage of having the rest of the story. We can see that God was trustworthy. Everything happened as he said it would. Even though doubts crept into Abram's heart and mind, he had no need to doubt. You can see that from Scripture. Right? And that encourages us. No one who ever builds their life and their faith on God's word, on his trustworthy word, will ever be put to shame. God's word will be proved true. You can count on that. Even if doubts begin to creep up in your mind. Trust God's word. You know, at this time, I also, I also think of the university students among us. Perhaps you have a professor who's very antagonistic towards Christianity, just wants to cast doubt on the truth of Scripture. No, don't believe him. Don't believe her. Don't be unsettled by such things. God's word is trustworthy. It will be proven true. You need never doubt. And this too is what we celebrate and focus on at Advent. God is trustworthy. He made all kinds of promises about sending a Savior in the Old Testament. He was not speaking falsely. He was not speaking with his fingers crossed behind his back. We can see that he did what he said he would do. And this is the benefit we have of having Scripture and living after Christ's first coming. We can see how trustworthy God is. Let that encourage you. How much more can we not trust God's promises today? He will do what he has promised. See, God has likewise promised us an inheritance also. And you know what? Uh, the promise to give Abraham's descendants the land referred, more, re- referred to more than just the land of Canaan. Right? It, as we read Genesis, first of all, it refers to the land of Canaan, but there's more. Romans 4 says that the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the whole world. Yes, the initial fulfillment would be the, the land of Canaan, but it, It included more than that. And Abraham himself was looking forward to a heavenly country, an eternal inheritance. And this is exactly what God has promised us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's promised this for you too. 
And again, it looked like God nearly put himself into an impossible bind by promising sinners eternal life. How could God do that? Sinful people deserve to be forever cursed. They don't deserve eternal life. How can this be? Sinners deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth, not live forever on the earth. Proverbs 10 verse 30 says that the wicked will disappear from the land. But God can do it. God was so determined to be true to His promise to give us an eternal inheritance on the new heavens and the new earth that He was even willing to sacrifice His own Son to make it a reality. And that's what it took for God to be true to His word. It's why the Son of God came. He came to bear our curse for us and in our place. And redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we would have eternal life on a new heavens and a new earth. And we would receive this inheritance and have it always. And we would always be with God and always live to praise Him and serve Him in eternal life. That's what the Son of God came to do. The Son of God came to be crucified on the cross to fulfill God's trustworthy word. It's interesting. When Jesus was betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of his disciples drew a sword and and he struck the servant of the high priest with his sword. He cut off his ear. And then the Lord Jesus said to that disciple who did that, he said, put your sword back into its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Right? Christ said, I can get out of this situation at any time. Then He said, But how then should the Scripture, God's Word, be fulfilled? That it must be so. Aren't those words astounding? Christ went to the cross to prove God's word true, trustworthy. The truth of God's word depended on Christ going to the cross, and Jesus knew it. He knew God must be proved trustworthy. His word must be proved true. It must be fulfilled. So the Son of God, Christ Jesus, willingly went to the cross to prove God's word true and to save us. And that gives you all the more reason to believe God's word. It's it's faithful. It's trustworthy. You can trust God. Take him at his word. Christ went to the cross to show you that God's word is indeed true. Never doubt, beloved. We can be so thankful we have the Bible. God's trustworthy word, it reveals to us who God is, and we know him from his word. Shows to us he's powerful, shows he's trustworthy to bring salvation. And this is what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Let us trust him, serve him, let us love him with all of our heart. Amen.
Let us now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together hymn 80.